Hi, Sophie. Hi, Sin. Hi, Alistair. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. And welcome to the Snap Covenant, episode 245. And today's episode is titled Philosophy of Dark Souls 2, Take 2. Mm. Now, <laughs> the reason it's Take 2 is because we recorded Take 1, and it was beautiful and wonderful. And in Snap Covenant tradition, there was something wrong with the audio. Yeah. Though the content is good, it's very muffled, it's unlistenable, and we did what we do with all of our worst content. Patreon.com slash Sinclair Law. Alistair, could you introduce yourself and tell us about yourself and what you do? Hi, so uh, I'm going by Alistair here, uh, Alistair Sarwick, but my YouTube channel is Politics and Ideas. I mostly do short-form videos on different kinds of political philosophies, although I should be branching out to more kind of medium to long-form content uh, fairly soon. But yes, yeah, so that's where you can find me is, is on YouTube at Politics and Ideas. Thank you. Alistair, so could you please tell us what happened in Philosophy of Dark Souls 2, Take 1? So in Take 1, I went through the game talking about sort of the story, where the player goes when, and sort of talked about how the kind of philosophy of the game explains itself to the player as you move through the different sections, and particularly when you're dealing with stuff around the Emerald Heralds, uh, Vendrick, and Oldia, and we will obviously touch on those things again because those characters kind of embody a lot of the ideas that the game is sort of trying to discuss, particularly Oldia. And I should say at this point that when I'm talking about Dark Souls 2, I'm expressly talking about the Scholar of the First Sin version. Because, as I sort of discussed in the, in the previous podcast, to me, the Scholar version is sort of the completed version of Dark Souls 2. A lot of the themes in it are, you can see in the, in the original game, but it takes a Scholar edition to really draw them out, particularly with Aldia and Vendrick and, and the, um, the Lost Crowns, really begins to kind of delve deeper into a lot of the ideas being sort of put forward. And in terms of the uh, themes that kind of came out of how I was talking, Subjectivity, uh, individuality, um, the passage of time or impermanence, and then rulership um, and responsibility. Because I talked more narratively in the in the previous episode, I'm going to talk here more thematically about those different themes. Excellent, thank you. And before we start, do you think you could summarize Dark Souls 2 in like 30 seconds or less for anyone who's not familiar with it? A stranger from a strange land, an undead who is losing their mind, is told to go to Dranglek, a faraway land up to the north. They travel there, they get there, are told that they have no hope in breaking the curse. But as they discover, as they wander through the land of Dranglek, they come across the Emerald Herald, who appears to be a guide of some kind, who tells them to go and fight the four Great Ones, who of course we know are the reincarnations of the Great Ones from the previous game. You do that, after doing that, you get to Dranglek Castle, which is the home of Vendrick, the king of Dranglek. Although, as you go on to find him in the Undead Crypt, he has also gone hollow. But you need his ring in order to uh, make your way through to Oldia, his brother's keep, where you, you find a, a reincarnation of, or in fact, a facsimile of a dragon who gives you the, the Ashen Mist Heart, which allows you to go and 
unlock the memories of the giants who were the ones to bring about Drang Lake's ruin. And in doing that and getting the kinship of the giants, you're able to unlock the Throne of Want, which exists deep beneath Dranglet Castle. And the Throne of Want is heavily implied to be in some way linked to the First Flame. And therefore the Throne of Want ending, as it were, when you beat Nishandra, who is technically the villain of Dark Souls 2, but is one of the weakest villains in a series that is kind of known for, for weak villains. To take the throne is to continue the cycle of light and dark and to either become the Lord of Dark or to continue the Age of Fire. While Aldia, who exists in the, in the Squalor version, tells you to leave and leave the cycle behind and try and start something else. Thank you. There are some interesting things that you, I guess, extrapolated from the story of Dark Souls 2. Yeah. Could you elaborate on those a little? A big theme in, in Dark Souls 2 almost to the point of parody, as Sophie, as you pointed out, in the original version of Dark Souls 2, is the idea of subjectivity. Because in the original version of Dark Souls 2, and anyone who's, who's played it will know this, one of the big complaints about it was that a lot of the um, item descriptions were frustratingly vague, or they were just asking lots of random questions, or wouldn't really give you information, so much as they would ask you, the player, kind of what you thought about things. And... That was, I think, a bad way of trying to get across the idea of subjectivity because it, it was frustrating and, and it wasn't particularly enjoyable. But throughout the game, there is this theme of perception and subjectivity and the idea of what the player and also the player's character are perceiving in the world and how that reflects back on them and how they're trying to change the environment around them. The, again, it's, it's heavily implied with the Throne of Wands that if you take the Throne of Wands, whether you become the Dark Lord or whether you link the fire, you kind of remake the world in your own image to an extent. Yes, other parts of the world continue on. Again, it, it seems like at the point we get to at least there have been you know, probably hundreds if not thousands of different kingdoms, but and each of those kingdoms do still remain in some way. But by taking the throne, you kind of remake the world in your own image, but only for a set time period, presumably a thousand years, because that seems to be what Gwyn had as well then things start to fade and somebody else comes in anew. And so, in that sense, the, the kind of world is consistently being remade by the perceptions and perspectives of those people who are able to take the throne of what. And in that sense, you know, not only is perception then important because it's important to the player, but it's also important to the character because how you play the character could actually determine what the world would be like in a future hypothetical where we got to play a Dark Souls 2 too, although obviously that won't ever happen. So, you know, if you were to play a cleric, for example, and they took the throne, presumably that the next kingdom would, would be based on fate. Vendrick was very much a kind of classic sort of Herculean sort of guts and berserk Conan type figure who put all of his faith on strength alone. And although he never takes the throne, we do see this in his kingdom. His, his knights fight a certain way. His elite world swordsmen all have two-handed swords. You know, there's a, a focus on kind of arms and armor, and we're told that he doesn't particularly like faith, for example, or doesn't care much for the gods. So again, if we were to take the throne, presumably our kingdom, based on what our character has, what we've meddled our characters to be, would be along the same lines as the journey we took in the game that influences how the world becomes assuming that we take the throne and continue the cycle. And of course, a big part of the tension in Dark Souls 2 is that tension between do you continue the cycle of light and dark or do you take Aldia's option and do you try and break it? So you say Vandrick doesn't really take the throne? No, he doesn't. No. 
What does he do? Well, okay, this is really interesting because it seems that there is a difference in terms of the English and Japanese scripts, in terms of what emphasis they put on certain words and ideas. And of course, because this is, this is a game that is so intentionally subjective, that could have a huge impact on how you view the game and the world. So I just want to make it clear, I'm going here from the, the English language translation. But Nishandra specifically, she says in one of her dialogues that Vendrick took the throne. He had the strength to rule his people, and when the undead appeared, he had the strength to oppose them, but he never took the true throne. And that's important because to her, therefore, he isn't a true king. And, and this kind of comes into the idea of rulership, which we'll get onto, where, like, in the idea of Dark Souls 2, to be a good ruler isn't so much to be, like, an effective taxman or military leader or conqueror, even. It's more that you kind of bear the weight of expectation and burden of your people on yourself. And the ultimate expression of that, obviously, is to take the throne, because then you take the world's burden on your shoulders and you remake it in your image, almost like Atlas holding up the sky to an extent. That's arguably kind of what Gwyn did in an extent, is that he kind of burnt his own life force to maintain his own age. He's kind of impressing his own view of how things should be onto the entire universe, whether or not that's a good thing. So Vendrick not taking the throne is really important. What does Vendrick do? Well, we know that, funnily enough, our player character kind of follows in the footsteps of Vendrick. It's expressly stated that Vendrick vanquishes the four great souls and builds his kingdom on them. In that sense, he seems to have built his kingdom on the four great ones, builds own castle, builds his kingdom, and then rules it, presumably for about a thousand years. It, but of course, at one point, Nishandra comes along, tells him about the giants. Him and Nishandra go over the seas, enslave the giants, bring them back, and take a prize from them, a prize that we still don't know what the prize was. And then, of course, the giants attack Dranglek in response, particularly Dranglek Castle, which is implied where the prize was. And then they're defeated, either by someone who we take the form of or by us in the past. It's not really clear. After that happens and the kingdom's almost in ruin, then the undead curse strikes. And so Vendrick is spending all of that time ruling and then desperately trying to hold his kingdom together until he realises that he's been duped by Nishandra and then flees the undead crypt, refusing to take the throne. And that's important because a lot of his character comes from the fact that he had the strength to rule, he had the strength to, to oppose the giants, and he had the strength to oppose the undead, but ultimately he wasn't able or willing to take the true throne. Whether that's because of Oldier, whether that's because of him, it's not really clear, but either way, he's unwilling to go that final step. Thank you. Okay, so then moving on to the second theme, which is the theme of kind of individuality. This is the most arguable, I think, because this kind of ties into the way I sort of think about things but one of the things about the subjectivity of the game and the way that the emphasis on the player's perception is obviously that leads into an idea about like the player's perception if the player's perception is important then obviously the player's individual experience and understanding is then very important and I do think that Aldia particularly plays on this a lot when he talks about the idea of what do you want he's constantly asking you mm -hmm. questions yeah when he's directly asking you the questions that you answer, he's constantly doing it. You know, Young Hollow, do you wish to shed this curse? Unless you have already joined the quest for and yet your journey is far from over. You know, he's constantly referring to you as a as a person. He's asking you specific questions. The point that Aldi is sort of trying to make, I think, here, is a lot of what's going to happen 
whether or not you take the throne, what world you want to create depends on you specifically as the character and therefore the player. You know, what kind of character are you the player playing? Are you playing as yourself? Are you are you setting a character? A lot of this is quite conceptual. The first time that you meet Oldia and the first time you play through Scholar, you don't really understand what he's talking about. He's, he's just sort of, he's, he's babbling all this stuff and you kind of get little bits and pieces. You understand that Vendrick's important. If you've played Doctors 1, you'd probably get his kind of oblique references to Gwyn. But exactly what he's trying to say isn't very clear. And it's only really once you've beaten the games, particularly when you've done the, the Lost Crowns, that you kind of get a bit of more of a sense of what he's doing. So even then, the game's kind of playing with your perception because it knows that you're not going to understand this character until you know more about the world. Which Dark Souls 1 does as well, but in that case, it's more that like you understand that you're being played, but you can't do anything about it in Dark Souls 1. Like no matter no matter what the player understands about the game, you know the characters will act the same way. Like you will never be able to get away from Framt or Karth. You will always be played by Framt or Karth or whoever. Whereas in Dark Souls 2, actually, if you understand what Aldi is saying, he's not trying to play you. Or he's, I wouldn't say he's trying to play you. He's trying to give you the choice. He's trying to actually give you the information so you can you can end up making an informed choice as to what you want to do at the end, whether you want to continue the cycle or you want to break it. That is very different from Dark Souls 1. Yes. In Dark Souls 1, people seem to be like puppeteering you, and I think it's especially hurtful when your giant waifu turns out to be an illusion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like the other thing about Aldia is like he admits to you that he failed. That's like the difference is that he can't really be a puppeteer because he admits he can't actually accomplish things properly. He's just sort of curious. Yeah. <laughs> So Aldia conducted unethical experiments to discover soul and all that stuff. Yes. And he used giants? Yes, he did. Yeah, he did, yeah. Did he use anyone else? Well, there's a lot of things in there. Mm. He has a little zoo. <laughs> it, it is basically a zoo. Or part zoo, part asylum at this point, really. Yeah. The idea is that Aldia and Vendrick, when the curse starts appearing, but as far as we can tell, the War with the Giants happens before the, the undead stuff happens. Yeah. That's over prior. And you can kind of tell this because when you go back in time, well, you're, you're, you're specifically told it as well, but when you go back in time, or whatever the Giants' memories are, the soldiers there are human. They're not hollows. So the undead curse wasn't around at the time of the War with the Giants. And I think the, the whole idea with... Aldia is that once the giants have been defeated, the kingdom's kind of trying to put itself back together again. Then the ended curse happens. And Aldia and Vendrick, who it seems were quite quite close at this point, yeah. decide that they're gonna try and investigate where the hell this is coming from. Which makes sense because that, that seems to be their kind of way of doing things. They they start both start kind of experimenting and it sort of implied they they begin to separate off at a certain point. Like Aldia goes to his manor and Vendrick stays in Dragonet Castle because the Emerald Herald says, you know, the castle is where a man peered into the essence of a soul, which I think is meant to be Vendrick, but it could be Aldia. It, it's not, again, it's it's sort of vague. But at a certain point, what happens is Aldia's experiments, it seems like they go beyond what Vendrick was comfortable with. And at a certain point, Vendrick seems to realize that Aldia has kind of gone too far. And so he locks Aldia in, into his, his mansion. 
was specifically told that the Oldier's Mansion key, and then also not only did he lock him into the mansion, but he he puts the king's gate in front of it. You can only open with the king's ring. So Oldier is like he's 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 cut off from the rest of Drang Lake intentionally by Vendrick. Like a big issue with the translation of Dark Souls 2 was that they kept translating the Oldier people as being like acolytes of cults when actually they, they were mad scientists. And so the implication kind of is that over time, because they're cut off, the Oldier scholars run out of new people to experiment on. So they start experimenting on each other. And that's part of the reason why you have all these weird grotesques in Oldier. You, know, you have mimics, you have the gargoyles from Belfry uh, Luna, you have um, the undead aberrations, you know, like the vague part giant people. Uh, not part giant, part people dragon stuck in people. Mirrors. Yeah, people stuck in mirrors. And the implication kind of is that every, by the time you get there, like, everything's there's almost no difference now which is also kind of a theme in, in Dark Souls 2 it's like they even make, mention this explicitly in Huntsman's Cops you know like oh it used to be that the old Iron King and his servants would hunt the undead in the Huntsman's Cops but at this point there is no distinction between the hunter and the hunted because they're all undead yeah and that comes goes into the idea of passage of time impermanence you know kingdoms rise kingdoms fall but the undead are a constant and everyone will become un- or at least not everyone but like the implication is that no matter how much the humans hate the undead, they will always become them. And in a similar way, like, these scholars tried to understand the ways of things but ended up becoming depraved and just became as bad as the experiments themselves. You know, they sort of destroyed themselves by this search for knowledge. Although Aldir appears to have succeeded at the cost of his own, well, at least his own body, if not his own sanity to an extent. So do they show any remorse for the experiments and all that stuff? Aldia does. Well, he, he says this. I am Aldia. I sought to shed the yoke of fate, but failed. His whole character is that he sacrificed everything. His morality, his physical body, possibly even his ability to exist outside of the first flame in pursuit of breaking the curse. A, a pursuit which to him was worth anything. You know, he's kind of like, a, in this period before we meet him, I guess you could call him like a well-intentioned extremist. You know, he's sort of the... Mm-hmm. Uh, he's almost like Griffith in... Um, you know, Griffith in, in Berserk? I, I, I was thinking about this, actually, and I think there is a... There is a well, well, I mean, I'm not saying that Griffith well intention necessarily, but the whole... I haven't read the, the manga, but the, the, the anime bit where he's... he's the, whole, the whole thing with the castle and the ideal and all that stuff, that reminds me a lot of Aldia. Yeah. But unlike Griffith, Aldia fails, and that's what makes him interesting because he doesn't get that second chance. He sacrifices all of this and yet still fails. And so in that sense, like, I'm not sure he's remorseful in the way that we would be would be remorseful. I'm not sure he's even capable of understanding. Like he's he's clearly been linked to the first flame in some way. So he doesn't even, even understand reality the same way we would do. But I think he's remorseful in the sense that, you know, he was willing to do all of that if it succeeded. But it didn't. And so now he's like, well, I failed. Utterly, totally, completely. I gave all of this up. And it led me nowhere. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I think we're going to move on to the impermanence or the, the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Because a, a big part of Dark Souls 2 is wandering through fallen kingdoms that at some point in the past were great and mighty and aren't anymore. And that's obviously a part of the original game as well. But here, it's a lot less focused around what those kingdoms were and how important they were. It's more like none of these kingdoms ultimately really mattered because they all fell. 
So I think we should move on here to what we discussed in the previous one, which was the sort of empirical engagement with the world that Dark Souls 1 fostered and how that didn't really replicate in Dark Souls 2, which I think is the cause of a part of the reception it got. Demon's Souls and Dark Souls 1, although because Demon's Souls wasn't as successful as Dark Souls 1, you know, it, it took Dark Souls 1 to really get this working. What Dark Souls 1 particularly did is it had a, a view of, of its world and the way that knowledge worked in the first game that was very empirical. And in what, what I mean by that is you were able to put together large parts of the world simply by looking at item descriptions, item placement, and you were able, therefore, to build a bigger and greater understanding of what was really going on in the world by putting together different item descriptions and lining things up. And what that meant was that was really good for the kind of YouTube culture and the wiki culture that grew up around Dark Souls. One, you know, people could make theories, but those theories could be tested. You know, there was, a, there was an empirical uh, scale um, that you could kind of put theories against and you could say, well, this theory doesn't really work because X and Y. Unlike, say, Demon Souls or Bloodborne, where I feel like there is more of a set timeline, with, with Dark Souls, even the first game, there is more of a focus on, like, leaving certain things up to the interpretation. Often character motivations, particularly like, like Gwyn's motivation or Gwendolyn or even Frampton Calf, are very much up in the air. Unlike, say, German, where it's pretty clear what he was trying to do, or Lawrence, or Maria, where the game pretty much just says, okay, these are these, are these characters' motivations, this is what they kind of want. The Dark Souls 1 even then isn't that. But there's certainly a lot more that you can do with that sort of stuff. And Dark Souls 2 completely flips that script and says, sure, if you want to, you can learn about Ferossa, or the old Iron King, or Hyde, but none of it actually matters. Yeah. <laughs> because what matters is the fire and the dark and the curse and the cyclical nature of the world. And I think that, partly because it wasn't communicated well in the, in the original Dark Souls 2, partly because it came along with all the other issues with Dark Souls 2, the, the bad marketing, the visual downgrade, all of that. And also partly because it was a bit of a culture shock, I think, to people who were coming from Dark Souls 1 and who wanted that same experience. You know, Dark Souls 2... It's like, no, Dark Souls 1 is empirical. Dark Souls 2 is is subjective. You can do little individual stories, uh, as you pointed out, Sophie, last time, in places like Brightstone Cove or The Old Iron King. or. But for the most part, that's secondary to the overall narrative. And that overall narrative is the metaphysics of the world. Whereas in Dark Souls 1, that was the baseline. You know, yeah, you had the, the four souls and the, and, and the dragons and all that. But everything that people cared about was about Gwyn, the Age of Fire, was about humans and their place in the world, was about, you know, the Witch of Isleth and, and the war between uh, chaos and the gods. And that's all character-driven or world-driven. It's not metaphysics, it isn't philosophy. Yeah, and, and that sort of relates back to what I was going to say about, like, the Rising and Falling Kingdoms, because one of the complaints that happened when Dark Souls 2 came out was... The way that characters would say, oh, many kingdoms have risen and fallen on this spot, was treated as though it was supposed to be like a plot reveal that you were in Lordran. So when you saw like bits and pieces of like a place kind of looks like an Orlando and oh, here's like a dark version of Ornstein and here's the altar of sunlight. 
all they mean by many kingdoms have risen and fallen is that it's meant to be like the big reveal is its laudron. And because that's not a very interesting reveal, people got mad. <laughs> but like, like you're saying, like the point was not line up the timeline of these kingdoms and how that, and like there were people who were lining up like, here's the altar of sunlight and here's where undead parishes. So if we overlay the two maps, then really? it means that like this becomes this and this becomes this. And it's like, no, 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 it, it's saying this doesn't matter. Them rising and falling over and over is the point. It doesn't matter what really what they were or what their relationship to Dark Souls 1 was. Hi, Sophie here. Sin can't come up with a way to organically connect what we just talked about to the next part of the podcast, and she's asked me to record a note in order to distract you. I don't really know what I'm supposed to talk about here, so um, I was going through some scans um, on like a really old hard drive, and I found this terrible, terrible old comic called Ass Kicker that I think has been rescued from a skateboarding magazine. Um, basically the, the plot of the comic is that Ass Kicker's girlfriend is upset about Princess Diana, so he calls her a, a crybaby and tells her to fuck off, and then he just launches himself out the front door like... In order for it to work, they must have a like a, a ramp inside the house, which I guess, I guess you would do if um, if you were like an ass-kicking skateboard guy professionally. Um, but the problem is he's not professional because someone meets him. I assume there's some sort of like like a manager or something, and they say to him that like if he quits drinking and smoking, that he can go pro, and then ass kicker. Um, responds by calling him a shit-talking pussy and threatening to kill him. So that was Ass Kicker. It is um, copyright dope comics. And there is an address you can write to if you want to learn more, I guess, about Ass Kicker. But um, this comic is is 24 years old, so I don't know if, if they're still uh, trading at that address. So hopefully now you've completely forgotten where the previous conversation with Alistair was actually going, and we can abruptly change subjects, and it won't seem as awkward. Back to the podcast. It, it's this weird thing where it presents like, and I think Dark Souls 1 is also doing this to a degree but less explicitly, where it's like, the hollow is the true form of humanity. When you are quote-unquote human, you're actually like in the thrall of Gwyn. But two is is outside of that and saying like no Halloween's fucking terrible. Halloween is like your yourself is dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think two is kind of doing both because the, and, and I mean Olya yeah. does say this. I mean, um, you know, he says uh, uh, once the Lord Man of Light, fleeting form, yeah, yeah, banished dark and all that stem from humanity and men assume fleeting form. These are the roots of our world. Men are props on the stage of life, and no matter how tender, how exquisite, a lie will remain a lie. And and so he's he's agreeing that like the natural form of humanity is to be a hollow but he's also kind of making the point that being a hollow is awful and that's what we see in, and we see it in Dark Souls 1 to a lesser extent but certainly in Dark Souls 2 hollowing as a process and this is sort of something that I find interesting as well with the idea of subjectivity because you could argue that okay humans are quote meant to be hollows right it's the natural state for humanity but is that a good thing in a moral sense like there's almost like a rejection of the the naturalistic fallacy here, 
where it's sort of like, well, these are the roots of our world, but could we not make a better one? You know, there's there's almost like a sense that Dark Souls 2 and Oldie particularly are kind of saying, well, maybe this is how humanity, quote, should be in a natural sense, but because it's natural, does that make it better or moral or good? Well, maybe not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Sophie brought up a really good point where in Dark Souls 1, hollowing seems kind of bad. Like nobody really wants to turn into a zombie or whatever. But in Dark Souls 2, it's very, very, like, traumatic. It's yes. really bad. Like, nobody wants that. Oh my god, please remember my name when I'm hollow. Like, it's much more intense in terms of sadness. It's much more poignant. And actually, yeah, I mean, you referenced Lucatiel there. And, and that's, I mean, she... I, I'd say her kind of storyline... It's it's a real shame because you get one really good storyline in Dark Souls 2, which is Lucatiel's, and then you get... Um, what's his name, Ben Hart of Yugos, which is just boring and rubbish. <laughs> I don't know what they thought they were trying to do with that character. But her whole thing, I mean, she literally, you know, she says, you know, I am Lucatiel, remember my name, for I will not remember it myself. Her entire arc is, it's interesting as well, because her arc is her being very standoffish and talking down to all, about all the undead. But of course, we know that she is undead. And then she finally admits to us she's undead. And then the last thing we see of her is her, yeah, I mean, she, she knows she's going hollow. I think people have, have talked about this actually. Um, the Hollowing in Dark Souls 2, it's almost like a reverse form of Alzheimer's. With Alzheimer's, it's it's like the, it's obviously you're losing your memories, but it's the recent memories that go first. And the stuff that you remember is the older stuff from like way back in your childhood and, and stuff like that, which is why if you have somebody with dementia, they'll often respond more to like childhood memories, things that remind them of their youth. Whereas here, it's the opposite. The older memories are what's going first. So in a way, it's almost... I won't say it's worse, but it's, it's, it's different because like you forget all of the things that kind of, quote, don't matter in the moment you lose until you realise that you've got nothing except the moment. You know, like your life is literally just down to your moment to moment. And, and that's expressly implied Lucatiel because during her story, she talks to you about her brother, whose name I've forgotten. Aslatiel. That's it, Aslatiel, who um, she could never beat in a sword fight. Um, and that's the whole thing with her, is that she was never as good as her brother, and she was constantly trying to be. And then when you find her, she's an oldie as keep, which is pretty far into the game. She's got a long way before before Halloween. And um, you find her, like, sitting, kind of clearly exhausted next to the bonfire. And then when you talk to her and you go inside, a red phantom invades you, an NPC, called Aslatiel of Murat. And the implication here is that she couldn't get any further and therefore hollowed because she was constantly fighting the hollowed form of her brother. But she couldn't even remember that because all of her memories had gone from her childhood. So she couldn't even remember her brother's form and look and name, which is why she doesn't warn you about him because she's so far gone. So it's even worse because, you know, not only has she been beaten by the same man she could never beat, but she doesn't even recognize him for who he truly is, even though he was so important to her. That ties very much into the whole idea of hollowing in Dark Souls 2 and how... And again, it, it affects the gameplay as well, obviously. Like, in Dark Souls 2, each time you die, you lose a piece of yourself. Your max health goes down, up to a limit. Uh, I think it's half. And again, it, it, it just reinforces the idea that, like, this is a worse fate than in Dark Souls 1 or Dark Souls 3. Because you are losing pieces of yourself, and the only way you can stop that 
it's by using human effigies and obviously taking in souls as well just to kind of keep yourself going and, and, and keep the wolf from the door but at some point you will end up losing everything unless you can break the curse and that of course is where all the kind of comes in thank you so the, the next thing on the list is rulership or responsibility because those two things seem to be linked in Dark Souls 2 mm-hmm. and so I'm especially talking here about the idea of rulership or kingship that we see in the game and also in the Three Crowns DLC um, because those DLCs do actually add quite a lot in terms of to like the themes of the game because in the base game we only see one king and the kingdom that they rule that being Vendrick. We do technically see the Old Iron King, but he's not really used in that manner. He kind of is, he kind of isn't. And you could argue that the Old Iron King and, and like the Duke in, in uh, the Duke's Dear Freya um, maybe would count as like rulers who've failed in some manner or who've seen their realms crumble. But it's the Lost Crowns that really kind of bring this home with the idea that each of these different kingdoms has fallen for some manner or other. Uh, the Sunken King is because of the invasion by the, the uh, Drake Blood Knights, who are implied to be linked to or under the employ of Drangleic, which is an interesting piece of lore trivia that I'm not entirely sure what to do with, but it's interesting none, nonetheless. And then, of course, you've got the Old Iron King DLC. That one's the most interesting to me because it, it's kind of doing a like, a like like a dual storytelling, where there's like two stories the Old Iron King. One is what happened to the old Iron King and the other is the Fume Knight Rain and Nadalia Bride of Ash a broom tower that it's it, it set in was owned by the old Iron King and so there's a lot of stuff there that touches on him and his relationship to Alon and you know what he was like before he fell but you've also got this other story which is like the present day story where it's all about Nadalia the Bride of Ash and, and like her relationship to Rain and what they're doing there and it's almost kind of implied that they're not really doing anything. They're just kind of chilling. And you come in and you you, you sort of kill them and get and get the crowns. <laughs> um, I guess you need those crowns. Maybe they're really cute crowns. They are. They do look pretty good. <laughs> Particularly Vendrick's crown. I, I do like that one. It's weird. There's there's a random skeleton in the um, the, the skeleton lords arena, which is just wearing Vendrick's crown for some reason. <laughs> Again, like I don't think it's meant to be Vendrick's crown. It's meant to be a crown, but it's kind of weird. It's like, oh, there he is. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then you've got the Ivory King DLC, which obviously is, to my mind, the most interesting with this because actually you could argue that the Ivory King kind of succeeds by failing because his whole thing is is keeping back chaos, and he does that by sacrificing himself. So he does fail, but he succeeds in failing. He's the closest thing to a successful king that we see prior to us. There's a, a quote from, I think isn't this the Chandra or is it the Emerald Herald, where she says how, you know, the job of a king really is to carry the weight of the people's souls, of the souls of those that they rule. And, and in, in the Japanese, it makes it clear that they're talking about karma, like the karma of their souls. Yeah. And so this is kind of what I mean when I say that, like, kingship in Dark Souls 2 isn't really about ruling in the material or empirical sense. It's not about, it's not about like, setting taxes or collecting revenues or you know policy it's it's about metaphysics it's about the idea of like holding up the world you know you act as the linchpin for your civilization in a very metaphysical kind of way which again as with a lot of this stuff Gwyn provides the prototype for because that's kind of what he did you know I mean he was an actual god or 
at least he he was something near enough to a god that it, it makes no real difference to the humans. And so, you know, he built his entire Age of Fire around himself as its linchpin. Therefore, when he goes, it's no real surprise that everything falls apart. And Alistair, earlier you said the policy? Oh, God. Hi, Sophie here. The reason I sound so, so excited is that Alistair just mentioned the policy. And the policy is the name of a podcast that Sin and I did that's a five hour long retrospective on an anime called Kitekyo Hitman Reborn that I hadn't heard of and and Sin decided that we had to watch all of together and it was was about 33 episodes 33 and we watched them in in quite short order to uh, to take advantage of offer a free trial that I got at Crunchyroll and I was not going to renew. And um, Kotekyo Hitman Reborn is is about a lot of different things. Um, one could perhaps argue that the author of the of the show didn't quite know what she wanted to do with it. So she just kind of tried everything. It's sort of like watching something be be redrafted in um, in real time. And um, the the best thing, best thing about about Katekyo Hitman Reborn is that um, that was only season one, and there's another um, about 170 episodes to go. So if you like. If you like um, the sound of Kotekyo Hitman Reborn, you've come to the right channel because fucking no one else, fucking no one, no one else is uh, is going to record a, an episode by episode podcast on it because um, not not that many people really remember it except for Sin. But every so often she'll. She'll show me that um, someone found the channel looking for for Gatekyo Hitman Reborn content, and and that will justify that will justify weeks uh, weeks on end just watching this this anime and feeling a profound sense of distress. Back to the podcast. When Aldia and Chandra and the Emerald Herald are kind of talking to you, the player, directly, they often sort of talk about the idea of... Like, again, there's the idea of like the true throne. Because, again, the true throne, which probably has a different translation in the, in the original Japanese, is the throne of what? Yeah. The implication kind of is that everything you do as a king prior to taking the throne of what is like a precursor. Because we, we see that a lot of the different kings are themselves very different from each other. Like, the Old Iron King is described as being kind of a, a bad person. He's literally described, I think, at one point as being, like, mad and depraved in the way he treats the undead. And that is express, ex- expressly meant to be a... Res- like, 
you're meant to take that as this is who this guy really is. And we know, or at least we can assume, that he did actually end up killing Sir Alon for some reason, although who knows whether we're actually meant to be the old Iron King in the in the memory. I know, I, I think that's the only way it makes sense. But the memories are... The one part of the game that just doesn't really make sense are the memories, and that's obviously because they're left over from the, the earlier build of the game. You know, the Old Iron King is not a good person. Vendrick is, I'd say, probably the most neutral of all the monarchs. He's kind of like his brother. He's very single-minded, but he's also very blind. You know, he he's obsessed with trying to stop the Undead Curse, and yet cannot see that his own wife is a shard of manse. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's, he's almost certainly very, like, narrow-minded, and maybe his rejection of faith and possible rejection of magic is also part of that like he's just he just has does one thing and that's it and then you have the sunken king who we never actually get to see i personally like the fan theory that the rotten is actually is actually the sunken king because that means that you fight all of the different kings in the game which otherwise the sunken king is anybody you don't actually get to fight but he's uh, kind of superfluous because that whole story is about ilana Queen of Rage and the Dragon Sin and he's kind of an afterthought but then the Ivory King is basically just a complete boss and and he's like the ideal kind of king spends his entire time trying to stop the old flame the chaos flame and when he realizes it finally he can't do it anymore he sacrifices himself to keep the gate closed and to prevent any more danger coming to his people and so in that sense, I think the point kind of is that like being a king isn't really about morality. It's it's about the process of taking the throne. And as Aldia says, many monarchs have come and gone, one drowned in poison, another son to come to flame, still another slumbers in the realm of ice. Not one of them stood here as you do now. You, conqueror of adversities, give us your answer. So he's expressly referencing all of the old kings and he's saying they were all kings, but none of them took the two throne. For whatever reason, none of them are here. You are here. Your choice. Taking the throne and and leaving the cycle ending. They sort of symbolise the broader point that Dark Souls 2 is making. Because unlike in Dark Souls 3, where the cycle is something that is stagnant, in Dark Souls 2, it's not so much that things are rotting or decaying, it's more like, like a Groundhog Day time loop, where when you take the throne, you remake the world. Things aren't stagnating exactly, but they also can't really progress past a certain point because after a thousand years, assuming we go by Dark Souls 1's time period, then somebody else will remake the world. So things can progress, but only so far. And then things are then remade out of that once again. So in that sense, sort of the question of like the curse then kind of comes back to that whole idea and it comes back to the idea of breaking the curse being almost progression but progression kind of for its own sake and and this is my interpretation of Aldia you know Aldia is basically arguing that the reason to break the cycle one is because it's unnatural because Gwyn has forced humanity into this but also because it's a change and again I think he makes that very clear in his final lines there is no path beyond the group of light beyond the reach of dark what could possibly await us, and yet we seek it insatiably, such as our fate. And he's kind of talking, I think, there about like the inherent curiosity of, of humans. You know, we want to see what's behind the next mountain, we want to plumb the depths, we want to see. And 
in that sense, like his his rage at Gwyn that he shows, you know, when he screams, you know, like no matter how tender, how exquisite, a lie will remain a lie. His his rage there isn't just because Gwyn's pulled a fast one on the entire human race. It's also because he has stifled humankind's creativity, their drive forward. He's he's kind of he's stunted the progression of humanity, and so he's saying, you know, for all he knows, and he admits this, you know, what could possibly await us? He, for all he knows, that his change could be far worse for humanity than this this cycle. But at least it's a change, and not only is it a change, it's a change driven by humans, not by the gods, not by Gwyn. Do the outro. That was The Philosophy of Dark Souls 2 with Alistair, who is also called Politics and Ideas. If people want to find you on social media, where should they go? They should go to my YouTube channel, uh, Politics and Ideas. Um, I haven't uploaded anything particularly recently, but that should change as uh, things improve. Uh, in the next couple of months, I'm hoping to start uploading again fairly soon. Uh, yes, just, just to reiterate, this, it has nothing to do with Dark Souls, and I'm not going to start doing Dark Souls content on the channel. But if you are interested in kind of politics or philosophy or ideologies or stuff like that, then I think you'll you'll enjoy my content. Um, and yeah, I hope to see you there. Well, thank you so much, Alistair, for coming. That's all right. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you, Sam. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And see you all next time. Bye. 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 Thank you for attending the premiere. Here are some outtakes from the first recording. If you'd like the complete first recording, you can find it on patreon.com slash thinklerlore. Alistair, if you could ask the Throne of Wand anything, what would you ask for? I ask it. Um, I would probably ask it whether it had anything to do with the old chaos. Now, Sophie, let me ask you. Yes, Sen. What would you ask the Throne of Wand? I'm looking at you right now, Sen. Yeah. And I'm going to ask it for season two of Reborn. Woo! Sen, what would you ask from the Throne of Wand? Nine pounds of sushi and a Japanese slipper. Okay. Is that a quote or is it just a yeah. That's just what she eats. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way you said it was an authority, it sounded like that line from the news brother. <laughs> so the story is, so I got into your channel about two or three years ago when I was looking for stuff to listen to while playing whatever the number of times I was playing Dark Souls 2 this time was. And, um, when I was listening to all your Dark Souls content, because I've never actually played Bloodborne before, I kept hearing references to this mysterious man Ludwig and how he killed Maria. And I thought, oh no, this is a big spoiler. This is a big spoiler for Bloodborne. I, I can't listen to this. I would fast forward through all the bits. And then finally, I got a chance to play Bloodborne. I had to play it on my PC because it was streaming from Sony. I really wouldn't recommend it because you're playing Bloodborne at 360p at like. 20 FPS, and even then it didn't actually have the DLC. So again, I would listen to the double podcast, and again, <laughs> Ludwig and Maria would come up, and I'd think, oh, I can't listen to this, it's going to be a big spoiler for the DLC. <laughs> so anyway, finally about a year ago, I finally get my hands on a PS4, and I buy it, and I download it, and I go into the, the, the DLC, and I'm like, right, I'm going to finally find out 
how Ludwig killed Maria. <laughs> and I beat Ludwig, and I'm like, oh, this is a great fight. Okay, what do you do? And they go up the clock tower, and Maria's just dead in the chair. <laughs> and, 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 and I was like, okay, this is a bit weird. And then I fight Maria, and it's a great boss fight. And then afterwards, I'm like, right, so Ludwig had nothing to do with Maria. <laughs> And then I go back and I listen to your Ludwig podcast and it turns out the entire thing was just made up. So I spent two years of my life thinking that something that was just an in-joke was an actual part of Bloodborne lore. <laughs>